you know, the headspace I was in when I wrote that book and I, I wanted it to be how it um, turned out because I, very, I wanted to document that first year of sobriety because I think a lot of the books that I'd read, a lot of the quitlit um, stuff, it's sort of from, from people that are, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years sober. And I felt like that what was working, you know, for people that were reading my posts and stuff on, on, on the sober group on One Year No Beer um, was the fact that it was kind of this like, a massive emotional roller coaster. That ideas from that uh, book are, you know, just how I was feeling at the time. And I've read a lot of other people's stories, and they've got a lot of, um, you know, a lot harder lives than I've had. And and I felt a bit guilty, you know, that I'd sort of feeling as bad as I was when there was no kind of, you know, tangible pain and trauma. But like as you said, as you go further along this, and you sort of get more at peace with what you've done and everything, you start realizing, no, there was actually. It's your life, it's your experience, it's your story to tell and you can tell it however you like. Hi, my name is Andy Ramage. Welcome to my podcast where I attempt to share the story behind the story of thought leaders, authors, athletes, everyday heroes and alcohol-free adventurers who have found meaning and purpose through their work while also sharing some of their greatest wisdom. Let's do this. There is almost an expectation for our rock stars and creatives to be hardcore party and addicted messes who find genius at the bottom of a glass. Drew Schrapper followed the well-worn path to the verge of destruction. Right? But something happened, which we'll explore during our conversation, that changed the course of Drew's life. Drew's just written a brilliant book called After Party, The Path to Sobriety which showcases the real brutal essence of rock star addiction and how Drew fought back to sobriety and wants to inspire millions of others to do the same. I've known Drew since the very start of his alcohol-free adventure when he decided to take a one-you-know-beer challenge. From his first post, you could feel his pain and artistry. His Facebook posts in our group became legendary for their honesty and prose. Drew is an inspiration, he's a great guy, he's become a great friend and even though I stepped down from one you know beer to start various new initiatives to help people reach their full potential, I still feel so privileged that we started a movement that's inspired people such as Drew who in turn is now attempting to inspire millions more. During this conversation we explore the full crazy tale of how Drew went from PhD to a rock star to sobriety superhero. Drew's charming, articulate, and has a powerful message to share. I feel genuinely privileged to be a tiny part of his story, and what a story it is. So strap yourself in. This is a roller coaster ride. All right, let's do this. Now, before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor, Athletic Greens. Yes, we have a sponsor out the traps for the podcast and not just any sponsor. Athletic Greens is the most comprehensive daily nutritional drink I've ever tried. And it was really important to me to align with a sponsor that were aligned with my values and a product that I actually used and genuinely I've been using Athletic Greens for several years now. And I got into it when I first started to transition my diet from a very poor one to an optimal one. And it was listening to podcasts such as the Rich Roll podcast, the Tim Ferriss podcast, and later Wrong and Chatterjee's podcast, who are all partners with Athletic Greens. I thought, I've got to give this stuff a try. 
and it has been a game changer for me. My morning routine, as many of you will know, looks like this. I walk downstairs, fill up a large glass of water, drink it, fill up half full another glass of water, pour in a scoop of athletic greens, fill it up to the top, drink that I'm on the bike. Now I know I might have freaked lots of athletic green users out who might be like, you can't put the athletic green scoop in the middle, it has to go in at the start or at the end, but that's the way I like to use it. And it's like my nutritional insurance because even with an optimal diet like I have now, life gets in the way, stresses, lack of time, travel, all of those things are there to trip us up. But I know if I've had my athletic greens in the morning, I'm like job done. And here's the thing, it is packed. Let me give you some of like the science and what's actually going on inside this drink. Each scoop's got around 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, multivitamins, multiminerals, probiotics, green superfood blends, and so much more. It basically fills all those nutritional gaps. That's why I use it. And this is where it gets interesting for you guys. Right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system, so they're offering my listeners a free, F-R-E-E, one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. Basically, you'll never have to buy vitamin D again. Right, so whether you're looking for peak performance, you're trying to just level up in your life, you're trying to fill those nutritional gaps, you're an alcohol-free adventurer trying to replenish your body, right, this is the drink for you. Simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy Ramage, right, and join the alcohol-free adventurers, athletes, health-conscious go-getters from around the world who make a daily commitment to their health. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy Ramage and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks yeah, for having I mean, me. Real this pleasure. is really thrilling for me. You know, it'd be nice for us to have a proper catch up and a bit of a chin wag about, you know, your experience over the last year or so on your path to sobriety and all the good things that have flowed from that. And just to give people some context to who you are, that you hold a PhD in literature. You are a rock star. I do, yeah. In many ways. A self-proclaimed <laughs> party animal that is now... A, uh, exactly, that. you definitely yeah. <laughs> we explore that. We'll get into yeah. that in a second through this brilliant book. Yep. And you've been called to write this book. And I say called because I think there's that hero's journey that I like to talk about and, you know, decode as we go through these podcasts, really, of that, that momentum in your life that's taken you from somewhere and your darkest and your most difficult times to this place now where you're in a position that you've created this beautiful piece of art. I'm going to call it a piece of art because it is it's a beautiful book. Um, to help other people. Thanks, I man. think that's really powerful, you know, that that journey. And that's the journey that I sort of want to explore with you today. So I thought we'd start at the beginning, you know, maybe give us a bit of context to your background, yep. the environment that you grew up in, and that first drink that you had when you were around 13. Sure. So um, I grew up in Ivanhoe, which is a little suburb in uh, Melbourne, sort of leafy, um, you know, riverside uh, suburb, really nice area. Yeah, really lovely family, very supportive great uh, relationships with all of them but yeah we just grew up in 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 early 90s and late 80s in australia and it was a heavy yep. boozing culture and uh from as young as i can remember you know um alcohol was just omnipresent it was always around even from you know four five six years old it was just something that i yeah. saw and wanted to do and knew that you know when i hit a certain age i would be allowed to do it 
be a man. Yeah, be a man, exactly. Right, learn yeah. how to drink beer, even though it tasted absolutely disgusting and all those <laughs> kinds of things. So, you know, the the uh, drinking age in Australia is 18. So, you know, we had to try and, you know, figure out ways to get booze. So, usually involves uh, stealing booze off our parents or bribing people to buy us alcohol. I think we, we all store sort of start there, don't we? I looked, you know, and reading your story, it was like yeah. my story, especially in the early days, on the page, that sort of 12, 13, just borrowing, I'm going to call it borrowing, but you never replaced it, from your parents' stash of alcohol or asking innocent bystanders, would they go into the offer license and buy you drink? I remember actually when I was, I think, 13, I was the sort of oldest looking of my friends. I had big braces on, right, like proper train track braces. I would go into the offer license and like fumble over my words and I wouldn't order just a normal drink. I'd order six cans of super tenants, which is like 9%. Like no one drinks that stuff, especially not yeah. clearly teenage kids. Yet we were happily served that stuff all day long. I mean, it's amazing when you look back. I mean, I think the world's changed since then a little bit, but it was certainly very accessible. I think so. I think so. I think so too. And like, um, you know, shortly after we did all that stuff, I think there were like fines yeah. brought in so that if you got caught, you know, you know, procuring alcohol for teenagers, you actually copped a massive fine. So it was just a bit, uh, yeah, slightly different era, I guess. But um, yeah, there was certainly never any problems getting alcohol. Like it was, it was really easy. And as a parent now, I sort of think, my God, it was so easy for us to get alcohol, you know, from 12 and 13 years old. So, you know, that, that kind of love affair with socializing through alcohol really began for me at, at 12 um, and 13 and sort of continued pretty much on, unchanged unchecked until i decided to give up alcohol um you know nearly three years I ago think that's now, so, so true and i say this a lot we start drinking in our teens and very often people never stop or they don't ever have a break until there's some reason to much later in their life in their 30s 40s 50s or again it never mm. happens and i think that's what's really important about your story is having that courage to be that circuit breaker i think i remember you mentioned that in the book, but there's something I just want to actually hone in on because right at the very end of the book, you said something that I just want to replay now and just sort of to broaden that conversation around that. You said you were owning basically the fact that this is a solo mission and you had to take responsibility for all of your actions. And you said there was no childhood trauma, no horrible experiences, nothing to blame on anyone else, just the reflection of a pudgy kid doing stupid stuff for no rhyme, no reason. And what I loved about that, firstly, is that yeah. you're taking ownership. But secondly, I do want to sort of challenge that in some ways because I would argue, and having read your story, that you were very similar to me in that regard, that you had that sort of social anxiety about being around lots of people mm. and, and doing what teenagers do, right, which is sort of doing the bigger thing with lots of people and partying. And I think if you're introverted, which I, I believe you are a bit like myself as well, there's a pain that's associated with that. You know, and I just wanted to explore that because Gabor Mate, yeah. the brilliant author and I guess one of the biggest thought leaders in the space of addiction, and his wonderful book, In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts, has this lovely saying, it's not mm. the problem, it's not why the problem, it's why the pain. And I know you've taken full ownership of that, yeah. but you know, yeah. I would almost argue that there was a pain there. There was that psychological pain of feeling awkward and therefore you behaving perfectly naturally as a human being. If there's something that can soothe the way that pain, why wouldn't you do it? Especially this thing that's prized and celebrated such as alcohol. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And I think that, that um, you know, the headspace I was in when I wrote that book and I, I 
I wanted it to be how it um, turned out because I very I wanted to document yeah. that first year of sobriety because I think a lot of the books that I'd read, a lot of the quitlit um, stuff, it's sort of from from people that are you know 10, 15, 20, yeah. 30 years sober. Um, that look, looking back on their time and um, you know doing it more of a, a how-to, and I felt like that what was working you know for people that were reading my posts and stuff on 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 the sober group on one year no beer um was the fact that it was kind of this like a massive emotional roller coaster that first year it's so many ups and downs so many peaks and troughs and so many of those um ideas from that uh book are you know just how i was feeling at the time and so many times i sort of had to sort of that um, particular excerpt that you mentioned was a really like tough Mm. one for me because i I've read a lot of other people's stories and they've got a lot of, um, you know, a lot yeah. harder lives than I've had. And, and I felt a bit guilty, you know, that I'd sort of feeling as bad as I was when there was no kind of, you know, tangible pain and trauma. But like, as you said, as you go further along this and you sort of get more at peace with what you've done and everything, you start realizing, no, there was actually, it's your life, it's your experience, it's your story to tell and you can tell it however you like. And for me, I was much more addicted to alcohol than I thought yeah. I was. And when I signed up to one year, no beer, I didn't realize how much of a problem it was. And then as I started to really uh, unpack my own behavior, I realized that, you know, the levels of drugs and alcohol I was consuming were not, you know, something that everyone does. And that had its own, you know, pain and trauma associated with it. I mean, and yeah. I mean, I'd wake up every, every Monday, every Tuesday, whenever I'd get home and just un like seriously ask myself why I did that. Uh, you know, for 20 years I did that. And what what like, are we doing? I know you I can't see really, it, can you? Yeah, never sat yeah. well with me. <laughs> but we, yeah, we, exactly. and, and, you know, having read your book and, and loved it, it was literally, I, I think I'm really sensitive to this stuff, right? I trained to be a physio at one point in, in the sporting world when I was playing professional football and I just couldn't do it because I couldn't physically look at anyone in pain or that had hurt themselves because I would feel that pain in my body. This is like the mirror neurons that science has since discovered that we literally can look at other people and our brains fire as if we're performing that act. And reading your book, genuinely, it was Mm. so well written, I could feel the pain in my body, you know, like when it was going wrong (laughs) and it was like, I was like, oh no, literally in my bones, I was with you going, oh, don't do it, oh, the pain. The pain of it. And, it, yeah. and I think that's what makes it such a great experience and a, and a great read. And, and the greatest honor I can give a book is that it's battered already. It's, it's dog-eared. It's got scribbles all over it. It's a book. You know, that's the thing about books. You need to read them and get stuck into them. Yeah. If they're pristine, it means someone hasn't read it. But before we sort of yeah, go on the right. adventure of sobriety, maybe just talk to us a bit more about your teenage years unfolding into your degrees and, and, and later your 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 discovery of music and then how you fell into this wonderful band yeah sure um so i had some pretty like uh, had some pretty intense sort of drug and alcohol experiences quite early so i um i've talked about it all in the book but um when i was 13 yeah i had i I drank like half a bottle of whiskey you know vomited everywhere did that usual rite of passage thing where you don't realize how strong the drug is and you um ingest it like it's water and you know live to regret it I then sort of dabbled in psychedelics and stuff from really early on as well, like sort of 14 and started taking ecstasy around 15 as well, but managed to kind of work my way through school. And then um, in my final couple of years of school, I sort of threw myself into sport and schoolwork and sort of put my head down and ended up getting quite good marks. But once I went to university, um, 
yeah, just the lid came off, you know, of all the party benders time. and on the weekends and party time. Yeah, as I'm sure it has for you know pretty much everyone. But um, there was quite a lot of drugs floating around at the time, and yeah, we were just always able to get our hands on stupid amounts of um, ecstasy and MDMA and speed and stuff, and that just became a, a feature of every weekend. You know, we'd just go out and party, not sleep, um, drink all weekend, and then as the come downs and the like anxiety started to spiral. I started to drink more during the weeks and use it as a bit of a crutch to get over what I'd done on the weekends, which sounds completely ridiculous now looking back but at it. That's but, the life, know. isn't it? That a lot of people are leading. And, and the, the truth behind this is that you were still doing well in your academics. And this eventually, I guess, led to, to PhD. I mean, in and amongst what, when you read it on the page, it just sounds like chaos. But here you are still showing up and doing those things. It was chaos, but like, I mean... Uh, I had this kind of attitude of like, you know, I'm getting yeah. by. So look at me, how, how, how like smart am I? Like I'm able to do this stuff rather than stepping back a bit further and questioning whether I could lead, lead a, a richer life, you know, with more ease and more leisure and more stronger relationships and all these kinds of things. Sort of had this kind of, um, you know, churn and burn idea of life and just go as hard as you can on all fronts and, excel and I think a lot of it you know I was thinking about this today actually I think a lot of the things that drove me to do the PhD to excel at music to you know try and um, kill myself in the gym every um, every other day uh, was this kind of idea that if I went hard enough at those things I could I could run away from the damage I'd done on the weekends I could somehow yeah, like offset it offset it yeah. yeah it's that I think we see that a lot don't we that I was certainly there you know being a professional footballer or being a professional athlete and we would go hard at it and I was like I'll run it off I'll sweat it out you know it's that sort of approach to life that I think a lot of people yeah, fall exactly. into that trap and, and you know the, the truth is that at some point it often comes back and bites you on the bum at a later date unfortunately absolutely absolutely and um anxiety I was experiencing as well like it's sort of yeah it was really off the chart and I um I just thought yeah. it was normal you know I just thought it was kind of normal stress but like a lot of those um a lot of those amphetamines you know that they they just really yeah. exacerbate um so much of the already existing social anxiety so when you actually have them that's great you know it turns it all off you just go wow this is great i feel happy and at ease and everything but then the rest of the working week you know following that you're an absolute cripple with it so yeah i think yeah it's a funny one because it's yeah. it's interesting because again I, th I think when we look back at our teenage years and our early 20s we don't have all of this wonderful knowledge that we have now as adults about psychology and how we work and I think we make these associations these neural associations like I said mine at 13 was this elixir that was cans of super tenants that could allow me to talk to girls it was and it worked I can't ever say it didn't work it worked brilliantly for me all that social anxiety that low grade I'm uncomfortable I'm introverted I'm awkward little ginger kid suddenly vanished that is powerful you know that so there was a real powerful neural connection made yeah. there and the same for you like you say you've got that anxiety you can do this thing that appears to remove it but secretly it's making it twice as what you know bad the next day and then we fall into this sort of these maladaptive mm. you know i guess coping strategies to get through life and then we just carry them with us you know for our teenage years for yeah, our 20s into our 30s and very often that's you know like in your story you realize one day oh this is actually not serving me anymore yeah, exactly right. And I guess like um like you said, you know, you carry you carry it with you and, and you end, you don't realise how much you are actually, you know, mm. self medicating. And I can remember um 
you know, walking into a bar, feeling uncomfortable, feeling out of, out of um, sorts and just like heading to the bar and, you know, getting pint, couple of shots, you know, drinking as quickly and as fast as I could just to like suppress that. And you sort of, I didn't realize how much it had kind of, it was starting to really dictate my behavior and determine, you know, the sort of things I, I, I put myself up for, the sort of jobs I applied for, the sort of work I wanted to do, the sort of study I did. So much of my life was being um, dictated by those feelings of awkwardness and stuff. And yeah, it, it got it got incredibly bad um, for a while there. But, you know, I sort of found music and that was really good. That helped me a lot with that. And in a funny kind of way, music sort of pulled me back from the edge, I think. And I sort of moved houses, got out of yeah. the party scene. And I was sort of like, no, I'm really dedicated to playing drums and I'll, I'll drive and I won't party as much and all that kind of stuff. But without addressing what was driving the party in the underneath, first place. Yeah, and, and and I'd compare that in, in many ways that I, I had sport and on the sporting field, I didn't have any anxiety. I felt totally comfortable, you know, at one in my element. And I think that's probably the same with you for music. But outside of that arena, then the anxiety was there. And, and I guess being involved in music in a band puts you in this strange situation where when you're in the music, you're in your element, but equally it's championed and it's sort of almost part of being a so-called rock star is to drink a lot and do a lot of drugs. It sort of comes with the territory. I mean, when you're starting out, like, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in, in Australia, you get paid in yeah, year. I mean, like, actually, like, your time gets recompensed with alcohol. So, like, what yeah. chance do you have? And, you know, obviously, like, the more success you get at it and stuff, you know, the less that is the case. But still, there's this kind of... um assumption that you know the association with yeah with alcohol and just even on that i'm thinking about like the creative process and i'd like to get your thoughts on this and again the arts poetry music is infused with psychedelics and just sort of people pushing things to the limit to create these amazing things but then when i look at that and i look at it from you know my objective view i just think that's just not true. I know there are these exceptions that some people seem to have created some, you know, work of art in amongst, you know, the noise and, and the chaos and maybe the sort of liberating mind space of drink and drugs. But what about all the millions and millions of amazing bands that never, ever produce any music or art that's never painted or poetry that's never written because people are too hungover and tired and uncreative that it doesn't surface? I know what your view is on alcohol and creativity as someone that's been in that space? I, I can answer that with an anecdote. Uh, I was out one night uh, with a friend of mine and we'd had, we were pissed out of our brains. We had psychedelics, cocaine, ecstasy, bunch of stuff. And we um, went to our little makeshift studio and tried to uh, write some music and have a jam and stuff. And we recorded heaps of this stuff that we thought was, you know, good ideas at the time. We went back in the cold light of day and deleted the entire thing. So, <laughs> for, me, <laughs> for yes. me personally, I, I, I found that um, I've found much more creativity uh, since sobriety, actually. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, I just feel like I've got got more time for it, more mental space for it. Um, in fact, you know, creativity isn't sparked at all by drugs and alcohol. I think the opposite i think it squashes it actually but and I th and my you know fellow uh, musicians or other people that i know in the kind of arts world that are really amazingly creative they do you know even if they're drinking or or taking drugs or whatever they, they don't do that and then they'll create 
their art in sobriety and then they'll party on the weekend or whatever and they, they keep them very separate. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think it's a complete misnomer that, that, you know, you need drugs to be creative. I think it's, you know, complete yeah, I think that's an important message because, again, like all these, we, we create these false associations, don't we, in society and just assume that the only way to be really creative is to somehow, I think Annie Grace talks about this. She was in PR and marketing and it was a little bit like they'd have their group meetings to get creative and it would be stocked full of booze as if the only way we can possibly make all these amazing connections is to do it while laced with alcohol and like as you said you just replayed that story there the yeah. creative people that you know are getting creative outside of the drink and the drugs that's almost the reward for them in a strange way for going through the creative process and yeah. i think that's a really important message to get out there so that we don't have as many people teenagers youngsters falling into that same trap of assuming to be like them i have to behave in this way and actually that's not the truth of it i think it was uh, was it Bruce Springsteen and one of the real big old rock stars said like the key to being a rock star is to give off this impression that you are this like sort of crazy out there on the edge guy while secretly coming home and writing and working really hard at all your lyrics and your songs yeah exactly that's right yeah and it's and it's that thing of working hard I think like uh you know I don't know any really um successful musicians that don't just you know they, they slave yeah. their art and you know they're not it's not this kind of hedonistic party lifestyle. And in fact, you know, it's more like the kind of B grade to Z grade musicians like I was that, you know, um, just party their asses off and, you know, use it as an excuse to, to just fuel their um, party, <laughs> which is where it ended up for me, unfortunately. But, you know. Yeah, and you describe it so <laughs> in well book. in the book. It is in the book and it is in, it's really detailed and graphic. And again, as I said earlier, you could almost feel the momentum of, oh no, not, not again. I know where this is going to end up. And mm. But living that lifestyle, and again, you know, just to give you some sort of credit, it's a tough environment, right? Because it comes with the territory. You got paid in beer and it's part of being young and in a rock band and all these sort of false associations. And like you just pointed out, they're so true. The really elite people at anything, in my opinion, they're not getting smashed up. And it's a bit like in the world of football. For years, there's been no. this association from the fans on the terrace. I'm sure it is like in Aussie rules as well, that all of their heroes on the pitch are still going out on a Saturday night and absolutely, you know, getting on it Saturday and Sunday. They're not anymore. They're they're athletes. Yet the the fans haven't made that yeah. association. They're still in their mind assuming they're all going out and partying when they're not. Not at the top level. No one is anymore. I don't care what sport it is no. that they've they've no. reined that in. No, I agree. And I think it's the same in music. To yeah. be honest, I think that the more professional, the bigger the bigger the stakes are, the more people are just. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions to that. And music's a rare one because it's not like you know in sport where you actually have to be you know peak physical fitness and a lot of people you know i can't i don't know what it's like being at the very top of music but uh, i certainly know that my experience you know it was very saturated and it was really hard to not drink and even when i tried not to i'd end up drinking just because it was so just everywhere like it's everywhere you get paid in beer you get free beers you get you know people are there to see you there there to have a good time and you know when we finally went touring and stuff you know like you're playing a show every night, but you know, they're those people are just there to see you once. You know, yeah. you're from Australia, there's novelty factor, you know, that that's there, that's that might be their one night out for the week or for the month or whatever, but you're, you know, 
um, up smashing yeah. it every night. Do, do <laughs> so you know what? And like... there's many similarities between that and Broken, the environment that I was in for years because we'd take out, say we'd have 50 clients. So every time you saw that one client, that might be their one night out for the month. So they've cleared it, you know, with their partner. They're like, game time. Come on, we're going to have a really big one. But that might be your third night mm. out that week. And, but they're expecting you to show up exactly. in a big way because they're all excited about it. And you're like, oh, I don't really want to do this anymore. And they're like, come on, let's go. And and almost mm -hmm. like a rock star, there's that persona of, hold on, you're a rock star. Come on. You can't tell me you're not going to have a drink tonight. How does that work? And in, in the same sort of way, it was a bit like you're a broken yeah. entertainer. You take us out. How can you not possibly not drink, right? So this builds this pressure that keeps us, I think, locked in something for way longer than we would normally, I think, in truth. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that sort of like permeates across yeah. society as well. I think that we all feel, feel that way as well. And, you know, you only need to sort of scan the one, you know, be a Facebook group occasionally and you just realize how much pressure every single person is under to socialize with alcohol, like, you know, family, friends, um, partners, all this sort of stuff. Oh, you've got to have a drink. It's, you know, this special night, it's someone's birthday, it's your birthday, it's all these things, all these occasions and it, and it sort of builds up into your mind and then it's not until you sort of commit to that first year off where you have to do all those things for the first time sober um, that you realise, wow, that's actually doable. You can do all those things that I thought I could never do without booze. You can, you can and, you know, it's actually quite fun. So, <laughs> Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll sort of we'll get back to that in a second and just to speak to that because I think it's so true I think what happens when we felt that original pain that anxiety that we spoke about in our sort of early teens we found this elixir this thing that soothed away that pain and then what we really do for the next 20 odd 30 years is rob ourselves of the opportunity to learn really healthy ways to deal with that you know so we almost have to retrain ourselves when we do take a break to socialize again to to and, and you talk about this in the book actually almost getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable you know making mm, peace with yeah. the fact that every now and again you're gonna feel a bit anxious and a bit or uncomfortable but instead of just going rushing to alcohol it's like i'm just gonna sit with this for a while i'm just gonna breathe through yeah. this and letting it pass yeah. and i think that's it's a really powerful message that comes through the book and just before we get like any deeper into that let's just go back to this point where you were like right something has to change you've obviously been through all these teenage years the the partying the band all the sort of successes and failures that come with that and then you're at this moment you're like nah do you know what something's got to change talk us through that okay so um i kind of got through once once the uh the band started touring that was when i really felt like the drinking in particular escalated to a point where i couldn't really control it anymore you know, a couple of couple of you know two month sort of uh, stints on the road in, a, in inside you know sort of seven or eight months, and I was just drinking mm. so much, like every night, you know, to the point where I was either sick, passing out, you know, and just I couldn't cope with the pressures that mm. we were all under. It was things were disintegrating a little bit, and um, it was getting difficult personally, and you know, leaving my wife and kid at home, I was feeling pretty bad about that. Um, so I just buried it under as much booze as I could. And then I got home and I thought, you know, the band's kind of almost pretty much disintegrated. We're not really doing anything. So, I'll, you know, do I'll, I'll settle back into normal life, go get a job, go get a nine to fiver and, you know, just I'll be fine. But after you've stretched your tolerance of alcohol out to the level that I had, I just couldn't normalize. I couldn't sort of come back and go, okay, I can just have two beers after dinner. I, I was starting to drink heavily at home 
starting to have wine at sort of, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock, two o'clock, whatever, you know. And I just thought like this is starting mm. to get a bit, um, yeah, really, really bad example for my child. And I just felt like I was becoming just normalizing a really high level of alcohol consumption. And then I started to, the benders started yeah. to creep back in on the weekends as well. So not only was I, you know, sort of drinking two plus bottles of wine a night, I was also going out on the weekends and sort of find, finding drugs again and, uh, you know, drinking for, you know, 36, 48 hours straight and just, yeah, feeling pretty miserable. And because I had that experience of touring where I drunk so heavily, I was able to do that and it was becoming easier. Sort of handle it, as it were. Exactly. Yeah. And I started to get like, you know, I didn't realize all this stuff about addiction and about the physical withdrawal. I just, um, just kept drinking. And so I went out one night when I sort of said to my wife that I'd, you know, be home, home by 11. I was playing a gig at a local venue and I just started drinking and I was like, that's just, I've just basically lied yeah, <laughs> again yeah. and lied to my wife about what I'm doing. And um, I ended up staying out till like 10 in the morning or something, and, you know, did a bunch of coke and, you know, drinking gin at a stranger's house. It's just like, it's all this same behavior again. And I woke up that morning and just thought, I really need to try something. This is, you know, getting, um, yeah, it just got to the point where I was like, okay, I can't actually trust my yeah. own word I, I say things and i don't know if i'm going to actually do that or whether i'm just going to you know whether it's just going to turn out to be completely um a lie yeah wasn't feeling good about myself and that's interesting you say that because i think there is that trust thing isn't there you lose trust in yourself i think that's a really sort of that's a sad moment that's a tough mm. moment when you're just like do you know what i don't believe a word i'm saying anymore it's, i think that's a really like deflating moment and luckily i think you picked that up and you managed to turn that around and i think one of the great things we do when we go alcohol free we build trust in ourselves mm. again that's a really beautiful thing Absolutely. We trust the things that you say yeah, I, I mean I, I didn't realize how you know how bad it had had gotten but like it it really got to the point where i i couldn't i couldn't trust mm. a word i said and my wife yeah. couldn't trust me either and it's sort of like and they don't look like massive things you know like i'm i'm gonna come home at 11 and you come home late but it's like you do that just over a lifetime every weekend or every opportunity and it starts becoming a, a huge thing and those small things just add up and I, and I felt very much that I didn't believe a word I said and I felt mm. terrible about it. I started to really, and that voice inside, it wasn't a compassionate yeah. voice. It was the ultra critical, you know, like you're a piece of shit, you know, you're all these, you know, horrible things and the negative self-talk was, was horrible and just, I was sick of it, yeah. really sick of it. It was a real rock bottom kind of moment, yeah. actually. And yeah. How did you sort of turn that around? What were the what were the things that started to happen? Um, well, for one, I I sort of looked into AA. Um, yeah. And I found AA a little bit like I wasn't really ready to hear what AA yeah. sort of said that you know you have to sort of face that you're an alcoholic and you can't ever drink again and all those kinds of stuff that I think is probably accurate now looking back at it. But at the time, I just felt like it was yeah. too. I just kind of got into a reverse and yeah. Um, and then I was, uh, a friend of mine actually um, mentioned you guys uh, one year no beer and I had a look and I just thought, well, this looks, this looks great. I can, I can saw one of your videos about, you know, um, challenging people to, you know, have a year off and see how it feels. And I thought, well, I can do that. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's brilliant. I? I don't know. <laughs> so I, I, I signed up, I signed up for the 28 day challenge because I thought baby yeah. steps. Got through that, um, 
not really very well. I sort of, you know, had a stumble after three days, five days, 10 days, did that kind of, you know, blip, reset, had a bender, you know, couldn't quite get the momentum going. And then um, then it sort of stuck for about 10 weeks, I did, I think, for yeah. 70 days. And then um, I had one beer, which turned into about 50 beers and a pile of ketamine, cocaine, ecstasy, acid, mushrooms, like the works. And I woke up from that bender and I just felt after 10 weeks of yeah. no alcohol, I had actually started to feel a bit healthier and, you know, feel my body starting to recover. And that bender after that was the worst I've ever felt. Like having experienced a body that was sort of getting yeah. clean and then to pile in the drugs and booze like I did, uh, it absolutely destroyed me. And I just woke up that morning and said, I'm doing a year. I signed up for a year that was my day one and that's the last time i've, I've drunk so that was two years and five oh, months ago i've so. got me maracas here i might have to whip them out any second but i'll keep them <laughs> on the table um but what's important to hear and we'll sort of dive into it now is that it wasn't this perfect linear thing it wasn't like da da hey that's it i'm never going to drink again you had lots of false starts and stumbles just like myself and just like most people that i know but the learning was in those failures and those upsets. And I remember you talking about, it was on your daughter's birthday where you basically stayed sober for your daughter's birthday and you were thrilled with yourself, delighted with yourself. And it was the end of the day and everyone had gone home and you thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I might have a drink to celebrate the fact that I've been such a good boy all day. I think you were like, I'll have a drink to celebrate my sobriety. We've all (laughs) been there. And and, uh, you know, when I was reflecting on that and I could again feel your pain through it. And I think what happens to a lot of us, especially in the early days, we're running purely on willpower. And willpower is like a metaphorical muscle. It runs out. And I think when you're like using so much of it around some of those big moments or big occasions, like a birthday that's, you know, associated with alcohol and you're just draining it, by the end of the day, there's nothing left. So when that little voice pipes up, which is completely like nonsensical. And it says, why don't you have a drink to celebrate your whole day of sobriety that you've got nothing left in the tank to fight that voice. It's like, good idea. I'll have a beer. And then that, you know, you wake up the next day and you you feel like you're back to square one. So I could hear that in your story, but it's important that it wasn't that perfect, you know, linear. I've made a decision and now here I am. And just maybe talk to what were some of the lessons learned in that process or in those obstacles that you had to face? Yeah, sure. I think that's a really good point and something I, you know, like to say and for everyone, um, you know, in one, you know, beer who's who's struggling yeah. a little bit, um, I, I cursed myself every Monday from when I was about 18, you know, from 18 to 36 when it finally started to stick. I didn't really want to be doing it. I th- you know, you, they're the years that you don't see that are like you are actually learning quite a lot about addiction yeah. and about um, what you need to get sober from those early experiences. But when I actually joined One Year No Beer and tried to, you know, get do the 28 days, I just found that I could get to, you know, like such a uh, familiar story, I could get Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday out of out of the way, but by Thursday, the willpower was gone. Yeah. I was run, was run out and I started to physically crave alcohol. I started to just want to, you know, shut up my brain. I just wanted to go back to the way things were. And so you start doubting yourself and you start um, questioning the whole process. And that's all just the kind of negativity that addiction thrives on and you sort of buckle. But then I was trying really hard to not let that kind of derail me. I did reset every time I did that. So I went back to day one. I didn't sort of continue because I just wanted to, I wanted to, 
being the kind of obsessive that I am, I, I wanted a full year with no alcohol at all. I wanted one year of yeah. no beer um, completely. Um, and that's just me. I think everyone everyone's different. Yeah. Do it your way. But that, that exactly. And yeah, each time I had those little stumbles, I just, I went back to your videos and went back to the emails and thought like, what made me do that? What, what was I really looking for when I had yeah. that drink? Could I have called someone? Could I have messaged someone? You know, what could I have done differently to not have the drink in the first place? And then I started to think about the reality of what I was facing. I realized I only had to say no to the first drink. It was all, the chaos happens after drink one. If I could just say no to one drink and ride out that 20 minutes where I really wanted that drink, then I would probably save myself all the drama, all the chaos. And that's when things started to shift. That's when I started to do other things. Like when I really craved alcohol, call someone i'd message someone i'd just post on the group i'd do something to break how i was feeling and just try and ride out that craving and then i, I found you know after an hour or so i'd yeah i'd written it out it wasn't so scary I, I did it and you just have to keep you know saying no to that first drink and then all of a sudden you find yourself the days pile yeah, up i mean and i think that's so poignant exactly that and and i talk about this a lot really it's not about focusing on 24 hours and you're completely smothered by this thing it literally is that first drink so if you actually do a lot of focus and a lot of work yeah. around avoiding that first drink when those trigger moments come whether they're you know at 6 p.m or after work or whatever it is if you put all your effort into those moments like you said 30 minutes later it's gone it's passed that's where you get that longer yeah, streak exactly and just talking about the first drink brings me to uh, another topic that i wanted to explore with you what's your view on moderation this, this is where I sort of started to warm to AA's message a little bit more as I got further into it. I sort of, I, I feel like the kind of person I am, I'm quite mm. obsessive. I'm quite like extreme. I'm all or nothing. I felt like if I just take it off the table completely, at least for a year, then I can give myself a chance to really, you know, see what life's like. And I, I remember your um, podcast with um, Rick, with Rich Roll. And where you're sort of saying that, you know, just, just try it, like try this, you know, way of living for a year, you know, challenge yourself. And I thought, well, I'm going to yeah. do that and I'm going to have no beer for one year and see how I feel. And I got to the end of the year and I just thought, well, I've come this far, like why I go back? So for me, I don't feel like I'm a moderate person in any aspect of my life. So what makes me think I could be moderate with alcohol? I can't be moderate with chocolate. I can't be moderate with study. I can't be moderate with music. I it's not how I how I am. So moderation with alcohol doesn't seem like it's going to be a feasible thing. So yeah, and I think it's getting to know thyself, and I think that's what these experiences yeah. do to us in life. Our hardest moments reveal our true self. We really get to know who we are and what we're all about, and that learning can be incredibly powerful. Like you just described, that you know you're an all-in type of person, but if you can channel that in these healthy ways, such as writing a book, for example, or sport or fitness, and your family. It's a really beautiful thing, but equally, you've got that self-awareness to know that you could just as easily pick that up and place it in a wrong area and you're going to go all in on that. Therefore, why put yourself back in the lion's den all the time when ultimately you've demonstrated to yourself over the you know last couple of years now that you can live this vibrant, energized life without it? So why bring it back? That's my view. It's like, why would I do that? Why yeah. would I go back to tiredness and lethargy and can't be arseness and all the little white lies and all the rubbishness and the weight and... I'm not ever going to trade that in a billion years for the fact that I'm alcohol-free. So for me, it's a done deal. I don't even bother with moderating. It's just not 
on my radar. But I know everyone's different, but I thought it was just an important yeah. topic to explore. No, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely in the same, same boat as you on that because it opens the door to too much uh, chaos. And for me, you know, there's a really strong association with, with drug taking and alcohol. Like I have not had any issues with drugs at all since I quit booze. It's that like it lowers the inhibitions. The minute I have two or three beers, I'm just like stinging to find drugs and it's always going to be the same, I think. So um, for me, there's that, that layer that like by not having that one or two drinks, I, I'm just shutting the door on, on the drugs as well. And I think that that's where I get really into trouble. So yeah, um, totally for me, agree. yeah, I'm the same. Just keep out shut the door it's shut <laughs> yeah and shut. i think you know we don't talk about that enough but alcohol is the gateway to the bad stuff isn't it let's be honest it's it's the huge it door opener to all the other chaos but equally i always like to say going alcohol free is the gateway to all the good stuff you know it's that little change in your life suddenly the thing that's created all of this upset and, and chaos in your life if you just turn it off it's the very same thing that opened you up all to this like beauty and vibrancy and energy and that smile and it all comes back just turning the dial on that that one thing and you're right so for me it's like why would I bother going and start messing with that again like I just shut it out yeah, and you know I right. lead this lovely life on the back of it so you start to get some momentum around your sobriety as you refer to it yep. what were some of the wins that you noticed and I, you talk about lots of little small wins in the book maybe just talk about a couple of them mm. it's nice to hear yeah, so I, it was really small wins. I, I sort yeah. of felt, you know, I mean, obviously there, there are some physical, you know, changes that I noticed really early. Um, you know, I just had a lot more energy. I was not, you know, sort of skipping workouts. So I was able to kind of do um, more healthy activities much more consistently. And as you know, like once you start building a consistent routine, you start to, you know, prioritize that over you know, the, the prospect of drinking, but then missing my gym session at 5am or whatever I was doing, that yeah. started to become like a really bad deal. So I started to get this positive um, reinforcement that I was putting in really great things that was um, enriching my life instead of, you know, alcohol and staying out late and stuff. So they were the little wins in terms of my physical uh, well well-being. Um, in terms of like you know gigs and stuff like that, because I was still I was still working as a musician at the yeah. time, so I'm still in in the environment. So like trying to, you know, when I was sort of like forty days sober and I'm out playing shows in Melbourne and stuff, and everyone's drinking, and it's just like so many triggers coming yeah. at you. But the little wins really came about through relying on other people a bit more, you know, like yeah. rather than sort of, you know, pretending I had all the answers and feeling like being really strong and you know macho and stuff i just put myself out there and just asked for help as much as possible and you know said what was on my mind that i was struggling that i was you know feeling you know in a weak moment and felt like i wanted to drink and the amount of support and yeah just just comments and messages and stuff from people um in the group was so good and that that really helped me to just put away those ideas of, of drinking at that moment. And that's all you need to do. Just keep yeah. doing it in that moment. And I, I tried not to think too far ahead and tried not to sort of worry about whether this is going to be, you know, me for the rest of my life and just get over that, you know, that hour when I had to. And um, that was really, that, that really did start to shift my whole mindset around it. And the other thing that I started to do along with those wins was I started to really try and interrogate what I actually liked about alcohol. I'd sort of write, you know, down, pros, cons, those kinds of things, you know, what's it giving me? Yeah. What am I missing? What am I actually missing out on? And that helped, I think, to re sort of rewire my brain. I started to negatively associate with booze rather than 
romanticize it. But then obviously, you know, you, you get hit by weak spots where you start romanticizing it. And, you know, like, to be honest, that still happens occasionally, even now. So, you know, that's a long-term sort of prospect, I think. Yeah, but a couple of really important things there, and you just nailed it. It's that rewiring. What we spoke about mm. at 13, when we have those neural connections, you've literally got to go in and actually rewire those neural connections that stay with you for all those years and switch them to the positives of being alcohol-free and then switch on the negatives to alcohol which you know and you've experienced but equally there are always those moments I'm not sure I mean I'm what am I seven years into this now and that sort of stuff disappeared after year three or four but it, it was there that you know mm. when the rose tinted beer goggles suddenly slip over and yeah. the sun's shining and you That's reminisce right. and, and the way the brain works we don't store like movie clips in our mind we, we store just little segments of memories mm. and because of human nature, right? We have to stay relatively positive, otherwise what's the point? So the way that we store memories, we often select the positive snapshots. So when we reminisce, guess what we notice? We notice the sun shining and being free and young and sitting outside yeah. with our best mates, drinking and the crack and the banter. We remember all of that, but we completely forget and negate you know, the sickness, the arguments, mm -hmm. the couldn't be arseness that follows, the destruction, the upset. We forget about all of that and we just romanticize about those perfect moments. So what I always encourage people to, to do is to play the tape forward. You know, what would happen exactly. after those free yeah. drinks, right? And most of us know where it ends up and it's not pretty and it's not sunshines and it's not rainbows. It's exactly right. And and that your idea of, you know, playing the tape forward is something that I lived by. Like that that became I remember seeing that on one of the videos and one of the emails and I was like, That is so what I have to do now. Like that's yeah. the only way to get through this. Like, yeah, one beer looks great and I'm at, at the bar and that looks all, you know, you know, sunshine and lollipops. But what does it actually mean? It means one drink, it means another drink, it means another drink, it means I start jonesing for drugs, it means I get on the hunt for drugs. It means I'm out all night. It means the next three, four, or five days are a complete write-off. It starts to not add up. The scales tip, and yeah, so that that it was such a great, such a great tip, and something that I've passed on to everyone that'll listen pretty much about playing the tape forward and oh, you know, I love it. actually visualizing where the night ends yeah. up if you, if you if you give up now. So yeah, and that and that's the truth. And when you connect with that, it's like, oh yeah, actually, yeah, you're right that doesn't sound quite as attractive as, as it did. But again, we're these perfectly imperfect humans. We're easily sucked back in, but it's so good to see your story unfolding. You know, I'm so proud that you've come this far and now you're ready to share this story. So just, let's just talk about the book briefly. When were you sort of called? And I like the word called because it is this hero's journey. When did you start getting an inkling? Do you know what? I might actually want to share some of my journey to help other people. It's interesting. Uh, so I, I did uh, creative writing at uni for a couple mm. of semesters and I really enjoyed it. And it was something I, I, I really loved doing. And I, um, But as I partied more, I found I had less to talk about. Like I sort of, you know, had the usual early 20s, you know, angsty bullshit, you know, unrequited love or whatever that, you know, yeah. is fun for, for, for a moment. And then <laughs> I was finding that like the drunker I got, the higher I got, the more I'd come home and just ramble and I got really sick of it. So I sort of threw out all my books and, you know, um, decided to put, you know, writing to the side and, you know, focus on, on more English criticism and stuff. So I knew that writing was in there somewhere. Um, and then when I saw the one, you know, beer, like the Facebook group and I saw people posting and stuff, I thought, 
well, this is a good chance to kind of mm. put it out there. And I thought the only way I'm going to get myself out of this is just like pure, like unbridled honesty because a lot of dishonesty had got me into a lot of trouble. Yeah. I just thought there's no way out of this other than just being honest. And in a way, you know, posting to a group anonymously um, to people you don't know is kind of weirdly liberating. And so I started posting um, and some a lot of the um, excerpts from the book were actually posts on the group. So um, it started really early on. So I think it was about day 10 that I did my first post and stopped lurking and um, wrote something down. And um, I just thought, thought I'm just going to keep doing that until people tell me to shut up and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was a part of that in the sense of seeing those posts unfold. And it was really exciting. And, and bear in mind, you know, there's been many tens, hundreds of thousands of people come through one, you know, being something I'm, you know, I'm incredibly proud of. And there's many stories that I noticed and, and yours being one of them because of the way that you, you wrote. And it wasn't just a post. It was like this sort of prose and this verse and this this art and it's lovely in the book that there's many many of those posts as you said that sort of you know signpost the book as it were as you progress through your days and the experience and I think that's what's nice about the book as well like you said it's not you looking back 15 years after being sober and going this is what happened it's like in the moment like I said that's why I think it's so sort of powerful you can feel it in your bones because it's really real and visceral but to see you coming through that yeah. to share it back now is so powerful so whereabouts on that journey did you think oh actually do you know what i might sort of put this together in some sort of a format and and give it back to people yeah well um i i, I had no no designs on that at all i mean i thought it was really helping me uh, more than anything else it was sort mm. of acting like a you know because every time i posted something and it you know was something i was really ashamed of quite often you know some episode or something uh, that I did where I was like, oh my God, I'm really ashamed of this. But I, I was trying to sort of own past mm. behavior and, and do it like just talk therapy, I guess, with the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> I started to realize that quite a lot of people had very similar stories. And when I'd post stuff like the amount of people that said, yeah, I've had that exact same experience. Or I've done exactly the same thing. I was like, wow, this is really, this is great. This is like, I'm not alone in this at all. It started to make me realize there was a whole network of people out there that had so many similar stories to me. And I thought, wow, we've really, you know, talked ourselves into a like stigma here. Like we're, yeah. we're so ashamed of behaviors and so um, incapable of talking about them publicly. I thought, well, I'm just, just going to keep doing that while it's, you know, serving me and while people are getting something out of it. And then I think at about maybe five or six months, I got approached by someone who said, look, these, um, I've been reading your post on One Year No Beer and I'd like to do a proposal of a book and I'm going to submit it to a friend of mine who's a publisher. And I did that and um, they loved it and said, yeah, let's let's do this. So I compiled all the posts I ever did on One Year No Beer up to about the five-month period and just thought I need Love to it. write a narrative around that and yeah. see where I end up. And I spent the next kind of six months um, doing that and, yeah, then obviously the book, you know, sort of takes over from the post. But I thought there were a few key ones that I wanted to keep in there. So, Yeah, and it's really beautiful. And, and again, on the hero's journey, if you look at the work of Joseph Campbell, there's always that sort of wise guide that appears. And, and in this example, you mm. just shared that, that someone within the group had seen what you were writing and from out the blue, you know, presented themselves and says, what about we bundle this up and potentially put put it forward as a book? And I think that's really important that you have the courage to be out there and owning it and sharing it. And through that courage sparks these sort of opportunities and these people that appear as if by magic that have now guided you towards a place where you've got 
a real book. I'm going to hold it up. Yes. It's a real book. <laughs> the wrong way around. It's a real book. I mean, that I know you're someone that loves books, right? And you actually mentioned that in in the book itself. And what did it feel like now to get a real book, like something that you can hold in your hands? How did that feel for you? It's so surreal, to be honest. It's yeah, it's something I always wanted to do. And you know, obviously, when I was studying at uni, it was like that's that's really what I want to do. And it's funny how like what you were saying, you know, about switching off the alcohol and then all these opportunities kind of arise. It's just something I never would have done without Mm. that. I would have had too many self-doubts, too many self-criticisms, trying too hard to reinvent the wheel. And what sobriety, you know, gave me was all this raw emotional uh, material that I could tap into. And I found that the more I wrote um, about it and the more I wrote just in general, the more I enjoyed it, the better off I felt and I started to feel like I got into a bit of a rhythm with it and I started to write every day and, you know, that's how you write a book is you just write and, you know, that's what I missed in uni. I wasn't just yeah. writing. I was writing sporadically. I was writing in comatose states and all this kind of stuff and I started to apply some of the discipline that I'd applied to my music and to um, my academic studies and stuff to the writing and just got up every day and wrote and all of a sudden you have this book and then you knock it into shape and then some people publish it and you're like, and here you are. very surreal. <laughs> Talking about here it. Here we are. But how did Talking you feel? And this is an important question because obviously you, you, the one, you know, be environment is a really safe, protective environment. People understand you, they get you. Many of them would have seen your journey unfold and your posts are visceral and they are real and they're candid. How did you feel about picking that up and putting it into a book form that anyone, you know, can get, read it friends family maybe people you'd never shared any of this stuff which is really raw with how did that feel for you i'm shitting myself to be honest mate like uh you yeah. know it's pretty <laughs> it's all out there um <laughs> it is <laughs> but you know i gave it to my wife uh first she got the first read um, yeah. i wanted to make sure that she was okay with um whatever i said uh then gave it to my sister to read um she's you know sort of second uh closest person i have and i made sure that she was okay with it and then i you know i gave my parents um a right of reply as well gave it to them to read and you know that that kind of was the scariest in a lot of ways um because like your close family and the people that you care about the most reading it sort of the scariest but now it's um you know it's that thing of like you know now it's not mine it's um it's public domain now it's um it's for everyone else and i've sort of made peace with the material in the book and and with it with me owning my story and I felt like it's it's also something I had to do you know like it was great to have that um safety net of one you know beer but I think that um it's really important that it goes out into the into the public and I and I'm fully open about it and fully able to talk publicly about you know that that story yeah and I love that once you own the story like that it's done right and then you've got total yeah. confidence and you're totally comfortable you're not tripping over your words it's like it's all there right it's in the book i can't there's no there's no running away from it you know you've been completely open and honest and that i think adds power to your message and to your story and, and you know i think this is just the very start of your adventure to give back you know to other people i think which is going to be really really powerful and going to help lots of people and just almost as we wrap up what's your dream for the book if you had a hope or a dream for the book what would it be I have been thinking about that quite a lot, actually, because you sort of wonder why you do this yeah. stuff. Like you sort of, it's not, it, it's not enough to just like write it because someone said, oh, you should write it. It was more than that. And I think that for me, what I really hoped 
when I set out writing it was just that if I could help someone who was in my situation, you know, two and a half years ago when I was really at the bottom of the barrel and feeling terrible, if I could just help them mm-hmm. get over those early stages and get through that first year and get back a hold of their life and feeling good about themselves and if I could play even just the smallest role in that, then that's what I hoped for the book because, you know, authors did that for me. You know, Annie Grace's book did it for me and Catherine Gray's book helped me enormously. So I just really wanted to try and give back to the people that were that are struggling because I, I care deeply about their, their future sobriety and it's something that I'm really quite passionate about and, you know, I hope that it, it helps people just get through those that really tough first year. Yeah, and that is a really beautiful thing that, that you've said there and done because I think it's exactly that. You having the courage, and it takes a ton of courage, by the way, to be as open and honest and share your story. If that helps that one person, and you, you're going to get so many messages from this and people will reach out to you and say, Drew, your words impacted me. I've connected with it. I've identified with it. I've made proactive change. It's saved my marriage or it's saved my life or my world so better. That in itself is one of the most powerful experiences you'll ever have. And I know that firsthand. That's why I do this as well. I'll do it to the day that I die in the alcohol-free space. I want to champion everyone in the alcohol-free space, especially yourself, because it's a really beautiful thing and it's a really necessary thing. And it's a really bespoke and unique individualistic thing. And we all connect with different people, different words, different books, different movements. And I think it's really powerful and we need more people like you um, to have the courage to share this stuff because I think it's a really beautiful thing. And if you help one person, who helps another person and collectively we move the needle a little bit, we might transform yeah. the world's relationship with alcohol. That's the dream, right? That's right. And, and that's something that uh, doing, you know, um, working in academia and stuff. And I always thought, you know, I wanted to, you know, try and have some kind of positive impact on the world. But I was always thinking systems and always thinking at that system level, thinking about big concepts, thinking about, you know, philosophical ideas that you, could sort of change on a system level. And then I sort of realized in, in writing this incredibly personal book that, you know, that's not actually my natural game is big systemic thinking. It's actually much more individual, personable, one-to-one. That's my natural habitat. And again, just another nuance of my personality that I just didn't realize was there until I switched off all the drugs and alcohol and was able to see it a bit, a bit clearer. So that's why I've gone the intensely kind of personal memoir track with this book. And um, I, I didn't want to sort of fill it with pages of research or stats or anything like that. And there's plenty of authors out there doing that. And, you know, that some people will resonate more with that. Exactly. But for those people that sort of are in that year and struggling and having writing that roller coaster, I just wanted a book that sort of said, that's okay. We all go through this. It's really tough. It's a hard first year. Here's, here's all the... Yeah, this is, here it did. is in its raw beauty, <laughs> it you know, in its yeah. raw beauty, all the failures and all the successes and, and look at the beautiful outcome. We're having this lovely conversation. You look amazing. You look lovely and fresh and energized, you know, your, your beautiful <laughs> exactly. family, you know, all of these things are coming together. And just what's really interesting is that there was that call, I think, probably all along. There was maybe something tugging you to say that you wanted to give back somehow and I think many of us hear that call I certainly did for years and it wasn't until after my relationship with alcohol and coming out the other side that this opportunity without me really knowing presented itself of oh here's a vehicle now for me to do some good in the world to give back somehow and I think that's exactly what's happened to you and I think it is a really beautiful thing and I'm really proud and um, honoured to be 
a small part of your story. I know you're going to be a big part of many people's story to come. So just thanks, to, mate. That means a lot. Well, you know, you're a bigger part than you're giving away there. It's not just a small part, yeah. a massive part, because you know, one you know, be the whole uh, the whole platform, the whole program, the whole uh, yeah thing you've created there is amazing. It's helping so many people. It's helping thousands of people. So it's a it's a brilliant thing. So thank you for doing it. <laughs> yeah, and and equally, it's a great thing because of the people that are involved, and obviously your stories in side the community are what inspire people and that's what i love about you know the alcohol free movement and the courage of people just inspires everyone else failures successes and then we realize you know what we're all perfectly imperfect it's time to crack on and it gives us a bit of space and time to figure it out because like your story is a brilliant example of that it's not this lovely linear perfect story there's many bumps in the road but here you are you know we've now with a story to tell a gift to give and on that note so where can we get a hold of the book where can we get in touch with you what's the next steps sure um so the book is coming out officially in august it's available for pre-order uh at amazon so it's right um, now yeah after party. yeah after party um and you can go to drewcharles.net which is my website and it's all all the links are there as well and it's also i think it's available on kindle like in the next couple of weeks so yeah the, the hard uh, cover comes out in August, but the Kindle's out in May. So, yeah. Love it. Audiobook? Um, audiobook's coming out at a later date. I think that's going to be more like towards the end of the year around Christmas time. So Fab. So, yeah. Which I'm to... looking forward to. Yeah. But <laughs> that, is a, that is a really difficult experience. Trust me, I've done it twice. And it was like yeah. two yeah. or three of the most painful days of my life. Trying to turn my Essex Fs into... <laughs> or thuds into thuds. Oh, I was all over the place by the end of it. But regardless, it's another great medium <laughs> to get, you know, your message out to as many people as possible. So I hope the audio book will follow. But as mentioned, I'll put all yep. the links in the show notes and whatnot. It's been an absolute great. pleasure. And on, on, I'm absolutely thrilled. This is the start. Well, thanks, this is mate. the start of your adventure. We'll do this again um, very soon just to find out how the book's going and, and the sort of feedback you're, you're getting. But I thank you. You're a hero in my eyes. Anyone in the alcohol-free space that's trying to help other people is a total ledge and you're certainly one of those thank you for joining me today drew your star thanks so much for having me andy and that legend status right back at you mate so yeah thank you so much good man all right let's do it if you enjoyed this episode please check out the shorter episodes which are clips from my daily live show the fun side of the island with andy ramage that you can join every day at 7 15 a.m bst by following at Andy Ramage Official on Facebook, Instagram, and on YouTube, search for Andy Ramage. Also, for the first time ever, I'm now training double accredited coaches in my unique coaching blueprint. Go to andyramage.com and check out courses for more information. And if you'd like to train with me on my latest online live course, The Arate Way, also head to andyramage.com courses. I'll make no secret of it. I would love to train with you. So let's make it happen. And I thank you for listening. It's deeply appreciated. The best thing you can do to show some love to the podcast is to click subscribe or follow. And don't forget the sponsors, Athletic Greens, who are giving our listeners a free year supply. Yes, free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today when you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy Ramage and sign up. And I love it most of all when you share the episode you enjoy on social media. 
You can just take a screenshot as you listen and then put it out and tag me in at Andy Ramage Official on Facebook and Insta. You're amazing. Finally, you can sign up to my free newsletter where I share exclusive posts along with things I'm enjoying such as podcasts, books, quotes, TED Talks and much more. And many of you message to say this is your favourite thing that I produce. So please check it out by going to andyramage.com and there is an option to sign up at the footer of every page. As always, a massive thank you to Matt McCormick for producing the podcast and thank you to Austin Sweetman for your digital promotions. You can find me on team at andyramage.com, at andyramageofficial on Insta and Facebook and Andy Ramage on YouTube. See you back here soon for another episode. Let's do this.